We're looking at uh, why John 5.28 alone refutes full preterism. And this is a, an appendix to my book on full preterism. Uh, I watched a couple of messages by Zach Davis, a full preterist. And people want me to respond, so I'm going to respond. And it's going to be very lengthy and detailed. You really need to listen to the whole thing carefully. Um, one thing I like about people uh, responding to me is that I can then understand more of their position and then uh, respond to that. There are certain passages regarding the future resurrection of the body that are so clear that full preterists must offer totally untenable, eisegetical interpretations of these passages. And one such passage is John 5.28. We're going to look at it in context. Actually, 5.28. We're going to look at 5, 25, 24 to 25 and 28 to 29. And uh, Zach uh, Davis, which is a cool name. He sounds like a country star or something. Uh, has a whole message just on Matthew 5.28. So we're going to respond. Let's read it in context. Most assuredly I say to you, or truly, truly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed, past tense, from death into life. Here's something new. Most assuredly I say to you, <coughs> the hour is coming, and now is, so it's going on in Jesus' day, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And then we jump down to 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves, and that's Mene Meois, will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to a resurrection of life and those who have done evil to a resurrection of condemnation. Now there's general agreement, especially among Reformed people, uh, regarding verses 24 and 25. So what we'll do is we'll very briefly give the standard Reformed interpretation for context um, so we can consider 28 and, tonight, and 28 and 29 in their immediate context. In verse 24, we are told that those who hear the words, the word of God with faith, that's the gospel, with faith possess eternal life immediately and will not come into judgment. And judgment is used uh, for condemnation. Christ is, what is his ministry? He's preaching the gospel. People are hearing that gospel. They're hearing the word. Those who hear with faith, they're saved. They cannot be condemned. They cannot go to hell. The hearing ear and the believing heart possess both the Father and the Son. And see Romans 8, 1 and 10, 9. So true faith embraces the word of the gospel, not simply as something that comes from Jesus alone, but also the whole Trinity and the interaction of Jesus and the gospel of John between the Father and the Son, what the Father does, the Son does, and so forth. And Very interesting. Verse 25 gives us some additional information about this precious salvation. As there is an external call of the gospel that is heard by physical ears, there is also an internal spiritual call of Christ to spiritually dead hearts. 
Christ's voice alone, through the power of his spirit, can reach dead hearts and raise them up spiritually so they can see, hear, and believe the gospel. The expression and now is indicates that this was already occurring during our Lord's ministry. The time is coming and now is. Right now. It's happening now. People are being regenerated by the Spirit now and embracing the gospel. This verse is not speaking of a future resurrection of the body, but of a present spiritual coming to life. And the Bible teaches two resurrections, a spiritual resurrection and a physical resurrection. Those who hear, that is, hear and heed or embrace, will live. Those who are spiritually dead cannot bring themselves to life, see, or perceive spiritual truth. John 3, 3, on the passage on being born again, and of course, 1 Corinthians 2, 14 to 15. <clears throat> and earlier in the same discourse, John 5, 21b, the Son gives life to whom he will. So the Son's voice is accompanied, and we're talking about the spiritual call, the inner call, with omnipotent and irresistible grace. The modern Lutheran or Arminian view that verse 25 just reiterates verse 24, with the added information that people who hear the gospel are dead spiritually, is contradicted by the fact that those who hear will live. That is, Christ's word of power gives life. Now, there are a, a, a very, very small number of commentators. For example, E.W. Hingstenberg, that believe that here Jesus is speaking of a physical bodily resurrections that were occurring occasionally during his ministry. It's an extreme minority view. I'd say for maybe every 30 commentaries, there might be one who holds this view. <clears throat> Given the context, the obtaining of everlasting life, verse 24, and the fact that the physical bodily resurrection of believers as an aspect of Christ's saving power is future and receives its own separate treatment, verses 28 to 29, such an interpretation is very unlikely. In addition, the raising of people from physical death during Jesus' ministry was not a bestowal of resurrection life with new glorified perfect spiritual bodies, but was a reanimation of dead mortal bodies into living mortal bodies. Lazarus didn't live forever. Lazarus lived to old age and died. That's just a regular resurrection. It's part of Jesus' healing ministry. It's not a resurrection unto glorified life, which is what the resurrection of the body when Christ returns will be. Now, as we consider John 5, 28 and 29, the central issue is whether or not Jesus is speaking about a physical bodily resurrection of people out of real graves or something only spiritual. That's the issue. Is it literal? Or is it metaphorical or spiritual? The fact that our Lord speaks about a spiritual bringing to life earlier does not necessarily mean that the topic remains about something only spiritual. And this question can only be answered by a careful exegesis or of the passage itself. Now, before we look at John 5, 28 and 29, let us briefly consider a very popular interpretation of this passage by full preterists. <clears throat> now, I'm not an expert on full preterism. I've written a book on it. But there's a, there's a lot of full preterists out there, and there's a lot of different views. I think the major view is this view. And I think this is the view of Zach Davis, if I understand him correctly. 
they come to the passage with the presupposition that everything had to take place in AD 70. That's full preterism. The end of Israel as a nation. Therefore, since there was not a physical resurrection of all physically dead saints and all dead and buried unbelievers in AD 70, according to their own theological assumptions, it must be something else. Right? If, if, if everything ended, if all the prophecies of the Bible were ended in AD 70, well, it can't be a literal physical resurrection because the believers are still, believers are still in their graves in AD 70, and of course, unbelievers are still on their graves, and there's very famous unbelievers, their graves remain to this day. What then is it? Well, they argue that before AD 70, all the souls of the righteous from both the Old and New Testament are trapped in Hades. That's the place of the dead. We're going to go into great detail of what Hades is. In Hades, usually the King James translates Hades, hell, most of the time, and they do so with good reason. If you do a study of Hades, that's almost always used for the place where dead, wicked people go. But it can also mean the grave, because it's, it's, uh, it's the Greek word for Sheol. It can also mean the grave, and it could, but it's usually used for where the evil go, and it's also used uh, generally the idea that saints go there as well. But we'll look at that in detail, because this is very important. So everybody's trapped in, in, in uh, Hades. <clears throat> but they continue, once Israel is destroyed and according to them the obligation of the Old Testament law is also nullified, this is what Zach Davis says, and he did a sermon against my views uh, on this passage. And, and, and according to the full preterist, the Old Testament law is nullified when Israel is destroyed and the temple is destroyed in AD 70. Once that occurs, all the dead saints come out of Hades and they get to be with Jesus in the presence of God. That's the full preterist view. And I believe, and I've studied a lot of full preterist books, uh, I believe that's their best alternative. Because you can't argue with something purely spiritual like regeneration. Now, before we see how this contradicts the plain meaning of John 5, 28 to 29, we need to mention a few things about this view. First, <clears throat> the full preterist interpretation of many passages is not derived from the text itself, but is imposed on the text due to their, due to their view of the time indicators. In other words, you would never, ever arrive at this interpretation if you just simply study the passage they arrive at this interpretation because they don't have any choice. Their view of the time indicators forces them to come to this passage. So it's not, it's not derived from the text. It is often the case that a full preterist comes to the text with a thought that if it cannot mean what it plainly says, because of their AD 70 view, so it must mean something else. Then they offer some unexegetical speculation that fits their paradigm. And John 5, 28-9 is such a text as we shall see in a moment. We're going to look at this in detail. Second, the attempt, and this is what full preterism does, and it, it makes sense because you have to understand, the resurrection of the body and the glorification of Christians, which occurs at the Christ's second bodily coming, is a salvific event. Well, if you 
define that out of existence by your time indicators, you turn AD 70 into a salvific event. Now, it's a temporary deliverance because it's a temporal judgment, but it is not salvific at all, as we'll see. So they turned AD 70 into some salvific eschatological event where the souls of the righteous are allowed to leave Hades. And this view is easy to disprove and therefore does not work for a number of reasons. One, and this is just so obvious, I can't believe they missed this. The Bible teaches that Christians, even before AD 70, go straight to heaven to be with Jesus. That's what the Bible says. To the criminal who was converted on the cross during the crucifixion, our Lord said, this is Luke 23, 43, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. And I think William Hendrickson's comments on this verse are excellent. He says this, quote, By what is meant by paradise? Paradise is heaven. It is as simple as that. From my book, The Bible on the Life Hereafter, I quote the following. Quote, the fact that heaven and paradise are simply different words that indicate the same place is clear from 2 Corinthians 12. Compare verses 2 and 4. Here we read that someone was caught up to the third heaven. <clears throat> it may be assumed that the first heaven was that of the clouds, the second that of the stars, the third that of the redeemed. But we immediately notice that the man who, according to verse 2, was said to be caught up into heaven, was caught up to paradise according to verse 4. This certainly indicates that heaven and paradise are the same place and not two different places. Revelation 2.7 and the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, leads to the same conclusion. For also in the book of Revelation, paradise is definitely another term for heaven. We read that the tree of life is in the paradise of God, 2.7, and that the tree of life in chapter 2 is associated with the holy city. End of quote. Now, many years before AD 70, the evangelist Stephen, right before he died, first he was a deacon, then he became an evangelist, cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, Acts 7.59. Where was Christ when Stephen said this? Well, in verse 56, Stephen says, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. When speaking about the possibility of being put to death or living on to continue his ministry, Paul says, Philippians 1.23, I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Jesus, which is far better. Okay, everything I've been reading here is before AD 70. Philippians was written around AD 62, eight years before Hades was supposedly opened up. So, clearly, people are going straight to heaven before AD 70. They don't have to stop in Hades. Now, taking the early date for the book of Revelation, that's A.D. 68, 67, 68, John observes a lot of Christians in heaven. Now, I know it's a, it's a, it's a highly symbolic book, but he's taken up to heaven. He's in the throne room, and he sees a lot of uh, worship going on to, of God. Number two, Enoch, Genesis 5.27, and uh, it's discussed in Hebrews 5, 5, uh, 11.5, and Elijah... 2 Kings 2.11 ascended directly to heaven in their human bodies. They went right up to heaven. God took these holy men from this present world into his presence. Not only did they not have to wait until AD 70, but they got to keep their actual physical bodies. 
This does not comport well with the Neoplatonic view of full preterists. Now, were their bodies glorified or changed? We don't know, but they were taken directly to heaven. The Bible's crystal clear. Number three, and this is critical, there's not one word in the New Testament about the souls of believers being released from Hades in AD 70. Show me. Where does it actually say that? We're dealing with a situation where they can't believe what the Bible literally says, or plainly says, because it contradicts their paradigm of AD 70, so they make something up. Why should we believe in unsupportable speculation that contradicts clear portions of Scripture? It is true that the post-Nicene fathers generally taught that the Old Testament saints were in Hades and that when Jesus died on the cross, he went down into Hades, announced that salvation had been achieved, and then escorted the souls of the Old Covenant believers into heaven. I was taught that when I was raised a Roman Catholic. Uh, and basically, they, they, taught, they thought that within the earth, within the bowels of the earth, there was two compartments uh, of Hades, one for the righteous, one for the wicked. And they believed that the righteous compartment was above the one for the wicked. That's, that's a very common view in the ancient church. But that's not AD 70, that's around AD 30, or even 29, or even 28, when Jesus was crucified. This view is widespread in the East and the West, was held throughout the Middle Ages, and can be found among Protestant reformers such as Calvin and Zwingli. Yeah, it was held by Calvin and Zwingli, this view. Although the ancient church's concept of Hades was influenced by intertestamental Jewish literature, and if you read intertestamental Jewish literature, they talk about two separate compartments, <coughs> they did offer some proof text for their view. Let's look at them. John 3.13 No one ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven. That supposedly implies that no Old Testament believer could precede Jesus into heaven. But that's not what the verse is teaching. It's really talking about the necessity of the incarnation for salvation victory. In addition, Enoch and Elijah did ascend to heaven. And their ascensions were clearly not salvific. Further appeal is made to Peter's sermon in Acts 2. You will not leave my soul in Hades. Hebrews, the Hebrews verse, it's, it's a quote from Psalms, Psalm 16.10 is Sheol. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now Luke, the inspired author of Acts, renders Peter's word Sheol as Hades. The word in Psalm 16.10 refers to the grave, not a place of our Lord's spirit. Now, you'd be tempted, but looking at the English, okay, the soul's in Hades. Oh, and by the way, the body's in the grave, and we're not going to let the body rot. But Hebrew poetry the second part re repeats the thought of the first part in different language. So it makes it clear that it's not talking about a compartment for the soul, it's talking about the grave. The point is proved by the poetic parallelism which tells us that Jesus' body did not undergo corruption or decay. Even in the tomb, God did not abandon the theanthropic mediator, but prevented his body in, pre in preparation of the resurrection from the dead. He preserved his body in preparation for the resurrection. He didn't allow it to rot. Now, Lazarus stunk. He rotted. And Jesus counteracted that. But God didn't allow Jesus' body to rot. 
And the statement, of course, is an excellent proof text against full preterists to argue that mortality, physical death, and rotting away in the earth is a normal part of the created order even before the fall. <coughs> if true, this would mean that when God declared his creation to be very good, and those are the words used, Genesis 1.31, he declared the death of human beings and their decay into dust to be very good as well. If true, then one could argue that all the Jewish mourning over dead loved ones was unbiblical because God said that death was very good. Now, we mourn when, a, you know, if your wife dies, your husband or somebody you love dies, a child or a parent, you, die, you cry and you're very upset about it. The Jews took this to another level. I mean, they actually had a bunch of women crying out and, you know, <laughs> throwing dust up in the air and the whole, they really got into mourning because death is not normal. If death was normal, there'd be no reason to mourn over death. They shouldn't, they shouldn't be crying because it was a normal, natural, very good aspect of creation. One would expect Jesus to rebuke Martha for telling Christ that Lazarus will rise again at the resurrection. She's talking about a literal resurrection, and that's what the Jews believed. He should have told her not to worry. Lazarus' soul will be released from Hades in AD 70. Don't worry. His soul's only going to be in there till AD 70. It'll be out soon. Instead, he demonstrated his power by releasing Lazarus from physical death even after he had begun to rot or decay. John 11, 17, and 39. Although as part of his humiliation, Jesus died and was buried, God did not allow his physical body to rot or decay. Now, what about another passage? Uh, and I think this is their best passage. 1 Peter 3, 18-20. Listen carefully to this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Yeah, I, I was taught this referred to him going down into Hades when I was a Roman Catholic, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine law and suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. Now, many believe the lower parts or prison refers to Hades, but there are certain things in this text which do not support such a view. A. There's nothing in these words about preaching to the saints in Hades. The people are identified as disobedient. So we cannot view this as a, speaking of a visit to Old Testament saints. It's the disobedient people in the days of Noah that we're talking about. B, the disobedient people are identified as only those living in the days of Noah. This means that we do not have an announcement to all the wicked dead in the compartment of Hades for unbelievers. I was kind of taught when I was a kid that Jesus went down into Hades and he all the people in hell, and he basically mocked them. Look, I achieved salvation. You're stuck here. Ha ha. No, that's not what happened. It's, it's about the days of Noah. Preaching of the wicked in hell would not serve any purpose anyway, for they cannot be saved or repent. Further, such a teaching does not serve what the apostle is teaching in the immediate context. See? The best interpretation view this as the preaching of the gospel of Christ in the days of Noah. Noah, by the Spirit of Christ, preached to the antediluvian world, but that world was disobedient and did not repent. And that's J. Adams, 
Hendrickson, uh, Gordon Clark. That's, that's the majority view. The water that lifted the ark and delivered Noah and his family destroyed the unrepentant rebels who mocked Noah and rejected God's word. Now, another passage, which is a bit more plausible, is Ephesians 4, 8-9. When he ascended on high, he had led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. That's a quote of Psalm 68, 18. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean by that? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Now the lower parts of the earth is supposedly a subterranean cavern where Hades is located. And the Jews came up with this idea during the intertestamental period. They believed that Hades was a compartment inside the earth. That's in intertestamental Jewish writings. Now this passage speaks about Jesus' incarnation and the idea that he descended into the bowels or caverns within earth is entirely foreign to the meaning of the psalm quoted. In addition, into the lower parts of the earth is the genitive of opposition, which is simply designed to contrast heaven above with earth beneath. See John 3.13, and 23, Acts 2.19. And the phrase in the Apostles' Creed, by the way, he descended into hell. In the Greek it says Hades. In the, the Greek version of the Apostles' Creed, the Latin version says Infernos, which sounds like hell, right? Was the last article to be added to the creed, and it wasn't added until A.D. 750. Protestants who recite the Apostles' Creed, and I'm talking about modern Protestants, interpret Hades as Jesus being placed in a tomb, not going into Hades to let the saints out or preach to the damned in hell. And that's what is taught in Reformed churches today. Hades there refers to, to the grave, the tomb. The idea that Jesus immediately after death went to Hades to allow the Old Testament saints out so they could go <clears throat> I never even finished that sentence uh, so they could go to heaven is, is simply not in the text whatsoever. Now, Philippians 2, 9-10 is the only clear passage in the epistles that addresses those damned in hell, both demons and humans. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. The word for under the earth, katathanion, means literally under earthly and refers to the abode of the damned and evil spirits. This bowing will occur on the day of judgment, not A.D. 70. Now, they would say the day of judgment is A.D. 70. But it's, it's, it's a forced bowing in terror, not a, not a bowing in humble love and submission. Moreover, there is nothing in any of these passages about Jesus letting Old Testament saints out of Hades. Oh, here's the rest of that footnote that I... It's on the, from the front. If we look at how Shaul is used in the Old Testament and Hades in the New Testament, we will see that it is primarily negative. Shaul, often translated hell, King James Version, is described as a pit, Isaiah 14, 15, and Ezekiel 31, 16, that is beneath or below. 
Proverbs 15.24, Job 11.8, Isaiah 14.9 and 15, and Amos 9.2. And the, uh, I, the Isaiah passage in the Hebrew even speaks, I talk about it in my little booklet on hell, of like side compartments in the pit. It is most often described as a place for the wicked dead. Isaiah 5.14, 14.9, Psalm 9.17, 55.15, and see Psalm 9.17, and Satan or Lucifer, Isaiah 14.15, including evil nations, Psalm 9.17, Ezekiel 31.16-17, and mighty pagan warriors, Ezekiel 32.21. In Ezekiel 32.27, it apparently refers to the graves of the wicked dead. It's kind of ambiguous. It is associated in Scripture with destruction and judgment. Uh, Proverbs 15.11 and Job 26.5-6. Sorrow, Psalm 18.5. Pain, Psalm 116.3. And trembling, Job 26.5-6. Evil behavior leads to Sheol, Proverbs 7.27-9.18. And the righteous must turn away from it, Proverbs 15.24. In Joel 2.2 it is used as a metaphor for death or perhaps the place of the dead, of the dead. See also Isaiah 28.15. In Isaiah 57.9, Israel is described as so evil that it is willing to go to Sheol to consult their false gods. In Psalm 6.5, we are told that in Sheol there is no praise of God. Here, Sheol may mean grave. In Psalm 16.10, we have the prophecy regarding Jesus' resurrection from the dead. You will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. The word soul in this passage does not mean the immaterial part of Jesus, but his person. When Jesus died, he yielded up his spirit, Matthew 27.50, and John 19.30. He committed his spirit into his Father's hands, Luke 23.46. And that very day, his spirit entered paradise, Luke 23.43. For the work of vicarious atonement was completed, and thus Jesus said, it is finished. John 19.30 His body, however, was buried, or placed in a tomb. The verb, you will not leave my soul in, uh, you will not leave my soul, azab, it's A-Z-A-B-H, means forsake, abandon, or surrender. When Peter quotes this passage, he points out that David's body, dead body is still in the tomb, Acts 2.29. So what is the contrast? Well, David, his body's dead, and it's still in the tomb. Jesus' body is coming out of the tomb. But God did not allow, to, allow Jesus' body to decay or rot, but raised it up, Acts 2.30-36. There is nothing in the text of Scripture that teaches or even implies that the spirit of Jesus went down into Hades to release the souls of the Old Testament saints or preach to the old, or preach to the people in hell. That's a false view of Peter. It is also evident that physical death is not regarded as good or positive or normal in the sacred scriptures. Men were being sinful and wicked. What did God do? They used to live to be almost a thousand years old. He shortened it to seventy. In the New Testament, Hades is often used as a synonym for hell, Gehenna. And by the way, Gehenna um, in the New Testament always refers to hell or the, the, the literal place 
where the, the bodies rot and eaten by worms. That's where they used to sacrifice their children to Molech in the Old Testament. The Valley of Hinnon became named Gehenna. And it was a garbage dump outside it was a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem where they dumped their garbage and they set it on fire. And uh, just all the almost everything we know about hell comes from Jesus. The vast majority of teaching in the whole Bible on hell, Gehenna, Hades, comes from Jesus. So, you know, the idea that Jesus was this loving, mellow guy and he didn't talk about hell and he doesn't condemn you if you're a sodomite, that's all a bunch of nonsense. He, he, he warned people about hell constantly. Now, in the New Testament, Hades is often used as a synonym for hell or Gehenna. Usually, it just means hell. In Matthew's, uh, Matthew's two uses, it is a place of destruction, judgment, and torment. In Matthew eleven twenty three, it describes the fate of unbelieving Capernaum. It is set in antithesis to heaven. It cannot be simply physical destruction or death, for the city's judgment is set in contrast to Sodom, which was fully destroyed physically. On the day of judgment, it's going to be better for Sodom than for you. So it obviously refers to more than physical destruction. And here, here it is, uh, Matthew eleven twenty four. 24. For the land of Sodom, it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment than for you. In Matthew 16, 18, Gates of Hades by Metonomy uh, re represent Satan and his demonic hosts. The place of evil represents the forces of evil that cannot withstand Christ's church as it conquers the world spiritually. You, you, you know the path. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. The church will conquer. The church will be victorious in time and in history on planet Earth. That's the teaching of Jesus. Now, probably the clearest passage regarding Hades as a place of punishment is in the story of the rich man and poor Lazarus from Luke 16, 19 to 31. <clears throat> when the poor man died, he went to Abraham's bosom and the rich, unrepentant man went to torments in Hades. That's the, the words. 1623, torments in Hades. And suffered in the flame, 1624. And he cried out in agony. Uh, he cried out in agony to Abraham to just receive a little water from Lazarus, 1624. Now, we don't know if this is true or not. This is, this is a parable parabolic. We are told that there's a great gulf between the place of the righteous and the place of the wicked, 1626, and that cannot be passed. Yet in the story there is communication across the great gulf, 1626. Now remember, once again, this story is parabolic, and we do not know how much of it is to be taken literally, or if some aspects are placed in it so that the lesson is made clear. But it's interesting. He doesn't call the place of the righteous Hades. He calls it the, uh, the bosom of Abraham. The place for the saints, basically. <clears throat> it seems very unlikely that there will be communications between the righteous and wicked dead. Note, however, that the righteous dead souls are not said to go into Hades. They go to Abraham's bosom. Now, the word Hades is found four times in the book of Revelation. In 118, Jesus possesses the keys of death in Hades. The point here is that Jesus has power over death itself, a state caused by sin. He conquered death. He, he died and then he rose. He conquered death. 
The point here is that Jesus has power over death itself, a state caused by sin, and the grave or place of the death. By conquering sin and death by his death and resurrection, Christ has total authority to deliver his people from death and the grave. In 6.8, the pale horse named Death is followed by Hades. You have war. What happens in war? Thousands and thousands, in like World War II, millions of people are killed, and then they are sent to Hades. Unless they're Christians, of course. The death of war is followed by the grave or place of death. In 2013-14, death and Hades are paired again. Those who have died and are dead are gathered together with their bodies for the final judgment. Even everyone who perished in the seas and appear ungatherable are raised and brought up to judgment. From verse 14, it appears that chapter 20 is focusing on everyone who is not a Christian. So everyone who is in a state of death and everyone in their place of death, because it talks about gathering people from the seas, comes before the judgment seat of Christ. And then death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. The parable of the rich man, Luke 16, 19-31, which describes Hades as a place of fire, agony, thirst, a place of torment, is cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. Now, one thing is clear from the book of Revelation and other texts. The full preterist idea that physical death is very good and totally normal is obviously unscriptural. If you want to be a full preterist, all the, time, all the times that the Bible talks about death as being highly negative and terrible, you have to interpret every passage as spiritual death only. Because physical death is natural. It's good. It's very good. God made physical death for, for humanity. But it doesn't work. It simply does not work. Death is paired with Hades. Jesus conquered death in the full sense of the term and came out of the tomb victorious. If death is very good in a normal aspect of creation, then what is the point of the resurrection of Christ? Why did he have to die? Why did he have to rise? One could argue that it only serves an apologetical purpose, but Paul repeatedly refers to the resurrection as connected to our justification, Romans 4.25, our sanctification, Romans 6.4-11, and our glorification, Romans 8.11. Jesus' resurrection from the dead, his physical body coming out of the grave, is salvific. It is necessary. And when I was doing my book on full preterism many years ago, I listened to a sermon by a full preterist, and his position, and I guess he had to come to this conclusion, was that the resurrection was merely op apologetical to show the Jews that Jesus, what Jesus taught was true. It did not have salvific significance for this person at all, which is contra explicitly contradicts the New Testament. And then he went on to speculate that perhaps a time will come in history when Jesus will get rid of his body, his risen body, you know, which still bears the scars which is totally Neoplatonic. Totally Neoplatonic. So anyway, that's about Hades.
Now, the idea after death that Jesus went into Hades to allow the Old Testament saints out so they could go to heaven has no solid exegetical support whatsoever. But the idea that this occurred in AD 70 has no passages, none, that one can appeal to. And I know, you know, Zach Davis, I, you know, I watched his messages. He's got two on me uh, on what I've spoken. And, and the guy's a sharp guy. And he's a nice guy. You know, this is not personal. This is not personal. This is a doctrinal issue. And he's very, very obviously very intelligent. But he doesn't offer up a passage that says that. That's just his conclusion because he's forced into that conclusion by rejecting a bodily resurrection and a bodily second return of Christ that occurs at the end of history, not simply A.D. 70. It has been made up out of thin air so that full preterists can deal with all the resurrection passages that contradict their position. Now, they arrive at their position with an exceptionally weak and arbitrary connection between the law of Moses, and this is another thing they teach that's just totally bizarre, the law of Moses supposedly being defeated and nullified when Israel was destroyed in A.D. 70. Zach Davis said that. Only then, in A.D. 70, we are told, could the saints be set free from Hades to be with God. The law had to be destroyed when the temple was destroyed. That's their argument. And this is a serious error, for it disconnects crucial salvific effects from the crucifixion slash resurrection, and instead connects them with a temporal judgment upon Israel. And this point is easily explained with a little systematic theology. So this is good theology. If you don't care about full preterism, pay attention. When Jesus died on the cross as an expiatory, that is an atoning sacrifice for his people, expiation, he removed the, the guilt of sin. All the guilt for all of their sins were paid for in full. If all of the Old Testament saints were trapped in Hades, <coughs> because the actual atonement, vicarious sacrifice, had not yet been accomplished, once Jesus died, there was absolutely no reason for them to remain trapped. And that's why it makes sense, if you're going to hold to the original position of the Apostolic Fathers, that well, the post-Nicene Fathers, that Jesus did lift them out of Hades. Here's some support for that, but first you have to prove that they're trapped in Hades, and there's no evidence of that. Once sins are expiated, that is, are fully removed, God is propitiated. Yahweh's wrath is fully satisfied. And the price or liability of punishment is paid for in full redemption. The curse, penalty, and the law is a condemning letter because no one can perfectly obey it except Christ has, never, um, has no ability to keep a believer out of heaven. Tell me why people are trapped in Hades after Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Why would they be? There's absolutely no reason for them to be trapped in heaven. Jesus paid the price in full. He either paid it or he didn't pay it. He paid in full. He conquered death. So if there was a time when the people had to be let out of Hades, it would have been around A.D. 80, 28, 29, or 30 when Jesus rose from the dead. Although the moral law can never justify and must never be used in an attempt to be justified by the works of the law, Romans 3, 10 to 20, 28, 4, 2 to 8, Galatians 2, 16, Galatians 3, 18, Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, Philippians 3, 7 to 9, etc. It remains the standard for progressive sanctification, personal growth and godliness, 
and covenant faithfulness. Romans 13, 8 to 10, Galatians 2, 17 to 19, Galatians 5, 14 to 26, etc. And that's in opposition to dispensationalism, which basically throws, in, in some of the Lutheran writers, they throw the whole law out as evil and bad. No, the law is, the moral law is good. God is just. His law is just. But we shouldn't try to be saved by the law, but it is our guide for living once we are already saved. Okay, they're led out of Egypt, and then they're given the Ten Commandments. In addition, the New Testament explicitly teaches that the Mosaic Law as a system for Israel was set out of gear or annulled at the cross and empty tomb, not A.D. 70. And this is the explicit teaching of the New Testament. For example, in Galatians 3.25, it says this, But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Now, the faith in question referred to three times in verses 23 and 25 as the faith, articular, the faith, not a faith, the faith, is the, is the faith in Christ just spoken of in verse 22. It is the principle and means of salvation opposed to law, and at the same time stands for the new order of eschatological salvation itself. In the Old Testament, they offered clean animals that pointed to Christ, but now they have the real thing. So the book of Hebrews is all about, Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. Read it. The coming of faith is therefore identif identical with the coming of Christ, who is the object of faith, which is the decisive point in salvation history. In Ephesians, Paul says that the blood of Christ has broken down the middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile. That's Ephesians 2.14. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create one new man. To create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Galatians 2.15. Since both have been reconciled to God, and another passage that completely refutes dispensationalism, since both have been reconciled to God by Jesus, sacrificial death on the cross, there is no longer any enmity between Jew and Gentile, Ephesians 2.16. For this reason, Yahweh ripped the curtain of the temple from the top to the bottom, the very moment our Lord died. Matthew 27.51 and Mark 15.38. This very tall and thick curtain was ripped right down the middle, Luke 23.45. Most scholars, now we're not, the, the temple had two big thick curtains. Most scholars believe that this was the curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies. This symbolism here is clear. The moment Christ's work of vicarious atonement was completed, the door or gate by which believers enter into heaven and the special presence of God is forever opened. The curtain was 60 feet long or 40 cubits and 30 feet wide or 20 cubits. It was about the thickness of a man's hand. Extremely thick. It was so heavy it took 300 priests to move these curtains. 300. The purpose of the veil was to separate the special Shekinah presence of Yahweh from the people and even the regular priests. 
the veil symbolized that under the old covenant administration, the way to God was not yet opened or achieved in history. Christ had to do that. Although the Day of Atonement, where the high priest entered the Holy of Holies with the sacrificial blood, pointed to Christ and the bloody cross, the veil signified no admittance. And this point is noted by the author of Hebrews. <coughs> Here's 9, 6 to 8. Now, when these things had thus been prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went along only once a year, not without blood, which he allowed for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. The rending of the veil coincided with the death of Christ and the end of the Old Covenant order. The whole Levitical system of types, shadows, and ceremonies had been superseded and put to an end by Christ's work. The typology of the temple system was superseded by the reality Jesus' atonement and high priestly word work, uh, Hebrews 8.21 to 10.21. The living way was consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, Hebrews 8.21. So it's not the destruction of the temple, it's the destruction of Christ's temple. <laughs> not the literal temple, but Christ. His crucifixion. Christ did not enter the holy places made with hands, but into heaven itself, Hebrews 9.24. His once-for-all sacrifice was perfect and sufficient and has forever put away our sins, Hebrews 9.14-15, 25-28, 10-12-18. Jesus' achievement of a perfect remission of sins at once made the Old Testament offerings unnecessary and unbiblical. Now, I understand there's covenantal overlap in the sense that the gospel had to go forth to throughout the Roman Empire to the Jews um, and those people who were still dedicated to the temple who had never heard of Christ uh, were cut some slack um, in that what they were doing what they were doing out of ignorance but the temple held no significance whatsoever after Christ died on the cross zero nothing nada it did not need to be destroyed by the Romans the destruction of the Romans uh, didn't do that Jesus did it <clears throat> The idea that this has to wait into, into A.D. 70 is completely unscriptural and contradicts a number of explicit passages. <clears throat> Genesis 5.24, Hebrews 11.5, 2 Kings 2.11, Luke 23.43, Acts 7.59, and Philippians 1.23. Paul explicitly ties the end of the law as a condemning force to the crucifixion in Colossians 3.14. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He then condemns professing Christians who attempt to apply Old Covenant ceremonial ordinances to the New Covenant Church. Colossians 3.17 So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ. So if the temple was still enforced until AD 70 and the law was still the Mosaic law was still enforced until AD 70, uh, Paul writing Colossians is clearly in error, but Paul is writing by divine inspiration. If the ceremonial laws are no longer binding at all, then the Jewish temple no longer held any significance for God's people at all. Here's what John Owen says. What were the tabernacle and temple? 
What was the holy place and the utensils of it? What was the oracle, the ark, the cherubim, the mercy seat placed therein? What was the high priest and all his vestments and administration? What was the sacrifices and annual sprinkling of blood in the most holy place? What was the whole system of the religious temple worship? Were they anything but representations of Christ and the glory of his person and his office? They were a shadow, and the body represented by that shadow was Christ. Was Christ. The temple was destroyed in AD 70. Not as some redemptive act, or so that the souls of the believers, the old covenant believers, could be led out of Hades, but because Yahweh abandoned the temple when Jesus died on the cross. You have to understand, when that temple, when the, the curtain was ripped from top to bottom, God left the temple. The special Shekinah presence, it's gone. There's no reason for that temple to stand anymore. It no longer held any religious or holy significance in God's sight, one iota. The fact that the Jewish political and religious leaders and the majority of people rejected Jesus and his atoning sacrifice and chose rather to stick with the temple turned the temple into an idol for destruction. It's an idol for destruction. It has nothing to do with getting rid of the law. That's a fantasy. I mean, it's just, uh, what they base that on, I don't know. I guess they base it on the passage in Hebrews. But the passage in Hebrews is simply making the point that Christ eliminated the, the temple was a shadow. It was obsolete. And it's been replaced by the perfect. And uh, this is the position of all Christian theologians. A.A. A. Hodge writes this. That the ceremonial law introduced by Moses was typical of Christ and his work as taught throughout the New Testament and especially in the epistle to the Hebrews. It was declared a shadow of things to come, but the body is Christ. The body is of Christ. The tabernacle and its services were patterns of things in heavens, in the heavens, and figures antitypes of the true tabernacle into which Christ has now entered for us all. Colossians 2.17, Hebrews 9.23.24. Christ said to us, affected our salvation by offering himself as a sacrifice and by acting as our high priest. Ephesians 5.2, Hebrews 9.11 and 12 and 26 and 28, and Hebrews 13.11 and 12. That the coming of Christ is superseded and forever done away with the ceremonial law is also evident from the fact that, just stated that the ceremonies were types of him. That they were the shadows out of which he was the substance. Their whole purpose and design was evidently discharged as soon as his real work of satisfaction was accomplished. And therefore, it is not only a truth taught in Scripture, Hebrews 10, 1-14, Colossians 2, 14-17, Ephesians 2, 15 and 16, but an undeniable historical fact that the priestly work of Christ immediately and definitively superseded the work of the Levitical priest. The instant of Christ's death, the veil separating the throne of God from the approach of men was rent and twain from top to the bottom. Matthew 27, 50, and 51. Thus throwing the way open to all and dispensing with priests and their ceremonies forever. The reason that it is important to go into such detail, and we'll end with this because I've gone on for a while. We'll come back. We'll take a break. We'll come back. The reason we've gone into such detail 
in demonstrating that the idea that the passages with Orthodox theologians have always attributed to the real bodily resurrection, supposedly really apply only to the release from Hades in AD 70, is that it is really only the best option for, 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 for full preterists. If you got a, well, I can't believe what the passage says, as we'll see in a moment when we look at the word for grave. I have to ignore what the passage says because it contradicts my paradigm of AD 70. So what am I going to come with? And, and that's what cults do. They contradict what Scripture teaches and they have to come up with something else that's not from Scripture. Their best option, as we have noted, is easily demonstrated to be unscriptural. Now, the, the, the post-Nicene fathers in the Middle Ages and even Calvin and Zwingli, who held to this idea that he went down and released people out of Hades the moment he died, uh, I can understand by looking at the passages without carefully studying them why they came to that conclusion. But that's not even true, and that's easy to disprove, much less this idea that he did in AD 70, and there's not a word in Scripture about it happening in AD 70. There's not one word. It's just simply an assumption. It's simply imposed on the text. I can't believe the truth. I can't believe what the Bible says, so I'll make up my own view. And that's what they've done. We'll take a break and we'll come back, and we're going we're gonna to come back and answer the question, does grave mean grave? We're going to get back to John 5, 28 and 29 and exegete the passage. What, what does grave mean? He could have used the word Hades. He doesn't. He uses the word grave. And we're going to see that the word grave or tomb always refers to a literal grave or tomb in the whole New Testament. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. We thank you. He died on the cross, according to the scriptures, and eliminates the guilt and penalty of our sins forever. We thank you. And we ask, Lord, that you would do a work in us by the Holy Spirit, causing us to love your Son more, more and more, and be obedient unto your Holy Word, be covenant keepers, to be faithful to your law. And we pray that this hideous heresy would not grow, but be extinguished by your Holy Word. In Jesus' name, amen.